0: Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help
1: you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson. I've got Kurt Mortensen here with me. Kurt, how's things? I am here. Things are going well. How are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. We just have a great show on some new information that came out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We're looking forward to talking about that a little bit and getting some input on that very important topic, which is negotiation. So we'll cover that. We want to remind all the listeners, we love your feedback at maximizeyourinfluence at com, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We are submitted to BlackBerry. If you have tried to find us on BlackBerry or on the Zoom marketplace and you can't find us for some reason, we'd love to hear your feedback so we can get after those guys. So just let us know at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. And we are in the process of getting accepted on TuneIn and Stitcher. So we're going big time, Kurt. This is not a small-time operation. Oh, well, let's make it happen. I like big time. Big time. That's right. That's right. So school started this week. You enjoy having the kids off at the government babysitter?
0: Uh well, you know, the first uh, week or two get the kids off is always tense, get them to wake up early, get them to school on time, get them to adjusted, get them to realize that they love school. <laughs> <laughs> And that actually, there are some things they learn that will help them in the future. It's kind of hard when they say, but dad, I'll never use that. I'm like, mm, that's probably right. I know. How do <laughs> you defend I don't, that? <laughs> I, know, I don't say it out loud. I'm like, good. It's, it's just getting your brain ready for better stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they say that when you're trying to persuade or influence somebody – you have to actually believe in the cause, don't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's why it's tough sometimes where you're kind of rolling your eyes. And I remember my school days and have the exact same feelings. And as you grow, realizing mm, that's kind of true, especially a lot of the university classes that you take and you study hard, you do all that for it. You're like, you know, I'm never going to use that Greek and Roman mythology again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, right. <laughs> I remember that. I did use algebra the other day. It kind of blew my mind. I ate my words for a minute. Oh, yeah? Algebra, I can see. It's the geometry.
0: Sometimes you're like, I'm not too sure about that. I guess if you're an architect, you'd use that stuff, but I guess it depends on your profession, too.
1: Yeah, right. If you're selling insurance, you're not going to use trigonometry.
0: Yeah, that's not going to come back. Biology's good. I guess it's known how your body works sometimes, but there are some of those classes you're like, hmm. And that's been my mission, too, on the university level is you say, hey, let's get some more classes like persuasion or public speaking or understanding human motivation or your own motivation to where it's something that people can actually use when they get out into the real world because that makes the biggest difference.
1: Right, I think we talked about that a few episodes ago where especially that last half of the senior year for so many kids that are in public school, it just seems like it's a waste of time where they could be filling them with classes on how to plan for your taxes, how to budget, how to do this, how to do that, things you're doing every single day they never mentioned in public school
0: yeah i guess they like the school of hard knocks so you go to school then you go to the school of hard knocks so they can laugh i guess i don't know
1: they have a secret room that they get in together and they laugh at us that's what they do yeah they're they're not ready they're gonna get screwed (laughs) yeah right (laughs) they have
0: no idea what life's gonna deal them they're all laughing in the back room drinking something but yeah anyway
1: (laughs) we're on to you your secret's out what's going on yeah Well, cool. We've got a. Don't, don't, don't! Blunder coming up. That's a new sound I hear. Yeah, I like it. Let's talk about the blunder of the week. Everyone loves a blunder. That's right. And as with all of the blunders that I do, it's open to interpretation as to whether or not this is a blunder. So I'm going to throw it at you and we're going to see what you think. Deal? Works for me. Okay, great. There is a supermarket by my house. And recently I noticed that all of the employees are now wearing this t shirt that says. I can fix it. Some of them say, I can make it right. And I think that from a high level marketing or branding perspective, they're trying to create this image that our employees are empowered, they're gonna do the right thing, they're gonna fix the problem. But the first thing I thought when I saw that was, what's wrong? How come all these people are wearing these shirts that say I can fix it? Where where are all these problems? Should I be having a problem? So am I out of line, Kurt? Are most people gonna see this differently or is this a bona fide blunder?
0: I could see a little blunder in that. I could see where the supermarket's going with. They want to make sure, Hey, we're customer service. We're going to take care of you. If it's wrong, we're going to fix it. But then you tend to look for things that maybe are wrong. You may could try this with coworkers. It's all about the expectations to where first person comes up to him and says, are you sick? And the person's like, no, no, I'm not sick. And like, are, you, are you feeling sick? The second person, the third person is sick and by after a while. They're like, yeah, I'm sick. I'm going home. So there's an expectation thing. Well, there's something that needs to be fixed. And we see this a lot with parenting too, to where a child falls down and you've got kids and they fall down and the first thing they do is they look up to see what the parent's reaction is. If the parent gets that look on their face, oh my, oh dear, what's going on? Are you okay? The child on cue will cry. And that's kind of based on that expectation. And this is something I had to learn when I was first married is I was grating cheese and I grated my finger and I started to bleed all over the place. My wife came and she started laughing at me. <laughs> I'm like, who is this person? I'm bleeding, she's laughing. But when she grew up, when you get hurt, everybody would laugh. And so we kinda instilled that with our kids. And I'm not talking about severed limbs or anything like that. But when our kids get minor scrapes or bump their heads, we all break into laughter and they break into laughter. I think the lesson here is is we look what you expect us to look for, and hey, I'm going to fix that. That means something's wrong. We're going to do something wrong. Something's going to be rotten. Somebody's going to slip and fall in the aisle of the supermarket. Somebody's going to wait too long in line, so now I'm looking for something for you to fix.
1: Right. I think that this could be tied into a concept that you refer to as inoculation, where we are trying to head objections off at the past, so to speak. We know that people will have a certain objection, so let's solve it before they actually have it, and that's more powerful. So where does it become, I'm I'm inoculating or I'm preventing an objection from coming up, and I'm actually creating a concern that may have never come up in the first place? Is there any way to judge that?
0: The biggest thing with inoculation or pre-solving objections is you know it's going to come up. You know it's going to be an objection. If someone's going to a supermarket, you don't know if they're going to have a problem. You don't know if you need to fix something, and that's kind of the difference. And when you say, hey, what do I need to fix, what do I need to do, now you're planting that seed. So with inoculations or objections, you don't want to plant a seed that they might have or that 10% of the people might have. You would only do that if you know 99% of the time they're going to come up with it. For example, I teach a lot of public speaking, and... My daughter loved to speak. She loved to do things until the adults start saying, are you nervous? Are you going to be nervous? I'd be nervous. Are you nervous? And all of a sudden, ding, 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 that seed's been planted. They're nervous. They haven't thought about it before, but since they planted that seed, now all of a sudden they're nervous when it didn't even get on the radar before.
1: Well, that's good. So much of how the persuader acts and how much confidence they show in what's happening frames how the person is going to feel. If they don't know what to think, if they don't know what to feel, then they're going to take somebody who's confident and they're going to take that lead from them. I've had a lot of clients over the years that I've done consulting for and inoculation is always something very big that we cover. And inoculation being a medical term, my my kids went to the doctor today and my wife decided that she was going to get him the mist for the flu to inoculate him against it. Don't send me a ton of emails about how vaccines are evil and they cause autism or whatever. I'm not going down that road right now. We're just talking (laughs) about a general concept. So the reason we did this, obviously, is we know that, hey, every winter the flu is going to be a problem. A ton of people are going to get it, so let's plan for it ahead of time. Whereas what if we tried to inoculate against all the different strains of the common cold out there? You just could never possibly do that. And you're probably going to end up giving somebody a cold if you pump them full of that much vaccine. So if you're noticing recurring objections when you're trying to persuade your prospects, then it's time to develop a way to inoculate against those kinds of objections. And I know it's not completely in line with what we had scheduled to talk about today, Kurt, but hey, here we are. So I want to ask you, (laughs) we need to get into this in a lot of detail in a future episode, but just today to keep it quick. What's one really great way to inoculate against objections?
0: Well, the key thing, first of all, is it's going to be an objection. You know your children will be exposed to the flu. Done deal. We know. Going to the school system, you know that's going to happen. And you're not going to inoculate, like you said, against all the 100 other things. But if you know that objection is going to come up, You solve it. The key factor is, is A, know that it's going to come up and solve it before it happens. If you start shooting in the dark saying, well, you're probably thinking it's too expensive. You probably think you don't have the time. You probably think I'm not trustworthy. You probably think I'm a moron or or whatever it is. You're trying to solve things that they didn't even think about. So if you can pre-solve it before they think about it, it really helps the persuasion process because when someone has a question or objection, it's like them mentally hitting a brick wall. They're stuck there while you keep going on your presentation.
1: You know, that's interesting. Last week, we talked about Jason, the persuasion ninja, Mm -hmm. and I, I just realized after we were talking last week, he did a terrific job of inoculating because I buy all of my meat at Costco. A lot of people around here who who grill and like to do those things like to go to Costco. They think that it has really good meat. Whether it really does, who knows? Maybe there's somewhere better. But early on in his presentation, he on the sly mentioned, yeah, and we provide most of Costco's meat. So he's taking away that objection of, eh, I'll blow this guy off. I'm just going to go get my meat at Costco, right?
0: That's exactly what happened. He knew that would probably come up. And he solved it ahead of time, so it kind of took away your energy, your steam. You couldn't have that objection or concern because he pre-solved it.
1: That's right, and he probably has been pitching this product in our neighborhood, and our part of the state, for a long time. And after a while, he figured out, you know what, all these people are bringing up this Costco thing. So, bam, in the first 10 minutes, I'm getting that out of the way. And, of course... I never even raised the concern, never really even thought about it until I did the autopsy on this thing after the (laughs) fact.
0: (laughs) That's a great example of inoculation.
1: Great. So let's get into some of the news today, something that I usually do, but Kurt's got it today, some information that came out of the Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology. Am I correct?
0: Yeah, it's a brand new study. came out actually yesterday from uh, Brown and Currum about negotiation. And negotiations is a subset of persuasion and influence about psychological arousal. Does that help or hurt negotiations? Go into negotiations, you're all nervous, you're all tense. What if, what if? They're trying to figure out, okay, does that help or does that hurt? And the answer is, I don't know if you're sitting down, the answer is, it depends. (laughs) You (laughs) sound like
1: an economist. (laughs)
0: We teach in public speaking is that it's okay to have butterflies as long as you get those butterflies to fly in formation. You've heard me say that before. And that's what yeah. they found in negotiations is that if you could take that nervous energy and turn it into more of a, a focus, more into a, something that you can turn around to something that'll benefit you, it actually helps. But those are going into a negotiations that are nervous or intense. What if they're going to take advantage of me? This is going to happen. Then it had the opposite effect. And they found that those that had positive attitudes were more likely to express greater satisfaction with the negotiation after feeling this tenseness versus those that were feeling nervous tense. They're going to take advantage of me. What if I screw up? What if they take all my money, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of an interesting study is how we take this nervous energy and turn it around, whether it's asking for a raise or closing the deal, or even taking a final exam or going into negotiation. If we can take that energy and get those butterflies to fly in formation and use it to our advantage, it actually helps us in the negotiation process.
1: That is surprising. I think intuitively we would think that you just have to tame those butterflies and get them to go to sleep.
0: No, they said it's actually good for those who were going in knowing that they're going to get a great deal out of the negotiation. They're excited to get it done versus those that are nervous and scared.
1: So learning how to curb those feelings and get them working to our advantage. That nervous energy, let's channel it into some enthusiasm on the pitch or the presentation, and then we're more effective. I guess maybe turning that into confidence to the extent that we can.
0: Exactly. In fact, they speculated that this psychological arousal is applicable to public speaking, to competitive sports, to tests, to take that energy and turn it to your advantage.
1: I'll be curious to see more literature that comes out on this as to how we can really do that. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, turn your nervousness to your advantage, but it's another thing to get those butterflies to fly into formation, so to speak. Do you have any advice or any thoughts that kind of popped in your head as you read that side of it?
0: Well, yeah, and you bring up a great point, point. and I think the big part of this as we talk about negotiations, for example, is that in negotiation, you're either going to pay with your preparation time or you're going to pay with lost money on the back end. What that means is when you're prepared, when you know what's going on, when you've done your research, you don't have that fear. I mean, you might have a little anxiety, nervous energy, but you know that you're ready. A professional quarterback, they've been doing this their whole life. They might be a little nervous, a little scared, but they know deep down they can throw a touchdown pass. I know when I'm going to speak to a crowd of a thousand people, I've done my research. I know my topic. I've spoken thousands of times. I can do this but I still have that kind of, "Mm, I want to do a good job. I want to make sure I don't trip and fall on my face. I want to make sure that the audience is excited and learns something and and, then laughs. I can turn that around, but I know deep down I've done it before. I'm prepared and I can hit a home run.
1: Right. In persuasion, we're getting all of what we want. Can you explain how negotiation is different than persuasion?
0: You bet. I've always said in seminars and trainings to persuade first, negotiate second. In fact, that's kind of, map it out. There's influence, which I define as a higher form of persuasion where people are influenced by who you are, your trust, your charisma, your passion. You don't need any tools or techniques. They do it because of you. Persuasion is what you do when you say those are the tools and techniques we're talking about versus negotiation. A lot of people don't like this. I say it's actually a lower form of persuasion because with persuasion, you bring someone to your point of view right? So they accept your point of view versus negotiation is give, take, give, take, and you meet somewhere in the middle. What usually happens is persuasion, there's a persuader and a prospect, and negotiation, there's two persuaders. So it's kind of a different little playing field, and a lot of the tools tend to be different.
1: That's a good point. So you're, you're not going to get everything that you want in a negotiation. You're aiming, of course, to get as much as you want. So I was kind of thinking that go to that negotiation with the nervous energy, And you need to channel that into the fact and accept the fact that it's not all going to come out your way, but you're going to try the best that you can, because there's a psychological component to the give-take in negotiation I've read, that when there is a good amount of give-take, both parties feel more satisfied, even if they got less than they would have if they just laid down at first. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. In fact, if you want the term it's called reciprocal concessions kind of a big word for an interesting concept with negotiations is basically if you let them persuade you on a topic on a term on a concession what happens is they're easier to persuade down the road meaning if I go into negotiation and you're not going to persuade me I'm not going to accept your point of view that's a stupid idea you're a dumb person they're going to reciprocate that they're going to feel the same way about you But if I go in there and say, you know, that's a good point. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to go ahead and give you those terms because that makes sense. I'm going to go ahead and give you that. Meaning down the road, they're more open for you to persuade them. So bottom line, if you can let them persuade you on a few minor points, whether it be a negotiation or even a teenager, that down the road when you really need it during that same negotiation or persuasion process, they're going to be more open for you to persuade them.
1: Good point. So in a perfect world... A negotiating template may be something like we sit down at the table and we say okay Bob we've got a couple of issues to knock out here I want to make sure I understand everything why don't we go over what we first are in agreement on and then you go down a list of ten things Bob's nodding his head yes you're emphasizing the fact that we agree and then possibly if you prepared well for the negotiation at that point you could make a couple of concessions that you know you're already going to be willing to do, that you give to him out of the chute in order to get some of those that are a little bit more important to you. Would that be a good template to at least start with in a perfect world?
0: Sure. Start with the things that you've agreed upon. Always solve the easiest issues first. Start that track record. Never start with the price or the things that are the hardest. Let's start with the terms. Let's start with the interest rate. Let's start with the time frame. Let's get some things going. And then if we do hit a sticking point, there's something called the set aside a technique where you're getting a little resistance. Well, let's set that aside. Let's solve some of these other issues. And that makes a huge difference. And even more important, here's one of those things that you've probably learned in negotiation that we now know through research to be completely wrong is they teach you in negotiation. Never make the first offer.
1: <laughs> Old school.
0: Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Now, if you haven't done your research, you have no clue what anything's worth. You're not going to make your first offer. But let's let's think about this for a second. When you make the first offer, you've opened yourself up, reciprocal concessions, and they're going to open themselves up. If you refuse to make the first offer and they refuse, you go back and forth, you have this brick wall between you and nobody's going to go. That's the first reason. The second reason is the research shows that the person that goes first dictates the starting point of the negotiation and statistically almost every time they get better terms.
1: That makes a lot of sense because if you make the first offer you're the one who's defining how big the playing field is or what side of it you're gonna play on. If you let the other person do it then that's a problem. Now if you don't know the market, if you're negotiating in unfamiliar territory, that may be advisable. A, so you don't look like a fool, right? <laughs> but if, exactly. But if you understand the product, if you understand the market, why not set the terms as to where this negotiation is going to happen? Give yourself home field advantage. Not only
0: home field advantage, you decide where the negotiation is going to start, and you've built trust and connectivity because you went first. You're open, which is going to open them up. It's a win-win all the way around. Again, if you're shooting in the dark and you have no idea what the home's worth or the product's worth, you keep your mouth shut, obviously, because you haven't done your homework. Pre-negotiation is critical, but that's a whole other topic.
1: Yeah, definitely a whole whole other topic, the pre-negotiation side of things. But I think as we follow this template and what we've talked about here today, the cool thing is, is sometimes along the lines of what we talked about last episode, a little bit of time of engaging in the process is what's necessary. Time has to go by for this concept of reciprocal concessions To be able to take hold and as you're emphasizing what we agree on a little bit of give take on things that you've got room on it builds more goodwill so somebody who may have said absolutely not to your most important item in the negotiation they may say absolutely not 10 minutes in but after a half hour of talking about what you agree on some concessions back and forth they're so much softer to that key point that you absolutely have to have
0: And that's a great point to kind of back up a little bit. If you sense during a negotiation, they're going to say absolutely not. If they're going to say no, don't let them. If you're sensing a lot of resistance, do that set aside. Let's set that aside. Let's get back to that because now the door's still open. A lot of times when they say absolutely not, no way, and you bring it up later, they've still said no. And we know how the human brain works and the human brain needs to be right. So if you're sensing a no, try not to get it, set it aside, get a maybe, let's talk about it later, let's do a little more research. The doors open a little wider than if they said no.
1: That's a good point. And you know, something that I've used it with my real estate clients over and over, when they have said absolutely no, for example, if we're making an offer on a piece of property, one thing that we've noticed disarms them psychologically over time is to say, hey, I understand. You've got to get what you've got to get why don't we do this? I'll make that good for 30 days or you know two weeks, whatever it may be. Why don't you give me a call if you don't get something better than that in that time? I'm willing to keep it out there and would certainly love to do business with you. And it takes that air out of the situation, the, the tension out of the balloon, so to speak, and the person, they start thinking about it. They go a couple of days and got any better offers and yours is starting to sound a lot better and the fact that you were so friendly about it oh maybe i should call that guy and a lot of times we get the deal because of it
0: and that's important to understand that you left the door open because if you followed your knee-jerk reaction if you followed the emotion said what are you stupid did you eat lead paint as a kid do you not see how good this is i spent 30 hours on this what are you a moron <laughs> right <laughs> now that's our knee-jerk reaction we want to say those things but you left the door open and say, hey, do a little more research, do this, this, and this. And after a while, they come to realize that it's a pretty good deal. And you left the door open versus slamming it on their fingers.
1: That's right. Nobody likes the door slammed on their fingers. And I think they might be expecting that when they give you the hard no. And the fact that you didn't do it, it really takes, like I said, it really takes the tension out of the room. So good tips on negotiation today. Anything else you want to add, Kurt? Yeah, something I learned from Earl Nightingale.
0: He says, you can't send a six to persuade a nine. <laughs> Let me add that you can't send a six to negotiate with the nine. You can't send a six to sell a nine. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means it's time to get some more tools. No matter who you are, you can learn more persuasion tools. If you're a six and you're a seven and you're influencing up, maybe a boss, you're going someone that's a seasoned negotiator, that's a professional salesperson. If you're a six, good luck negotiating or persuading a nine. So if you can get yourself to be a nine and you can persuade and negotiate with the nine, now you're on the same playing field. Because if not, they're always going to outpersuade, persuade out-negotiate, and outsell you every time because they have the tools. Sure, you can chop down a tree with a pocket knife, but let's get a chainsaw and do it the right way.
1: They say that every negotiation starts with somebody who has money and somebody who has experience and ends with the two reversing.
0: That's exactly right. Then the other person go like, what happened?
1: Yeah, I had all this money, and now all I have is a bunch of experience. <laughs>
0: well, at least they got the experience. They got something out of it. They got something out of it. That's
1: right. Well, great, Kurt. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for covering negotiation with us. And let's be careful to not commit that blunder. In A couple of takeaways from the show, don't put concerns into your prospect's head. But if it's a objection that you see coming up over and over again, it's, time to inoculate. And we'll definitely get into that more in a future episode. And negotiation, let's channel the nervous energy, get those butterflies to fly in formation. Any parting words? That's exactly right. If you can get that nervous
0: energy to fly in formation, it makes a huge difference. And another interesting study shows is that when you feel influential, whether you are or not, if you feel influential going into a negotiation, going into a situation, you actually become more influential.
1: There you go. Feel more influential, and we'll catch you on next week's episode of Maximize Your Influence. Have a good one. Take care, everyone.